Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. We are on episode number 95. Good old uh, Tuesday here. Market's obviously been shut down for three days now, which is boring. Uh, but, you know, it was really nice because it's always good to get away and uh, uh, hopefully you get to spend some time with family or whatever it is that you get to do uh, and uh, uh, reset a little bit. And uh, what's nice now is we get to come back to, well, at least if you're long, I suppose it's nice. Uh, green stock market. Uh, and that's well because uh, well, somewhat as expected, we uh, got a uh, debt ceiling tentative uh, framework for a deal. We've got a bill. We've got a 99 page bill. Uh, and uh, as uh, as widely anticipated, we uh, we are now seeing green in the stock market as a result of that. Now, uh, what ends up playing out throughout the day? Who knows? But one of the things I find very interesting is it seems like there's a lot a lot of talk about oh, who's going to hold it up now over at, uh, you know, Congress and just basically all this uh, fear and drama over, oh, no, but but some Republicans are going to try to hold it up. And then, oh, no, it's going to be some Democrats. I don't know. It all seems like nonsense. But uh, I do want to jump in and listen into this conversation here because it seems like they might be talking about the Fed a little bit. Let's listen in. Ooh, that reset again. I'll have to fix that. Hold on. We got to go, Greco. We gotta go to commercial, Dummy. Never mind. They're going to a commercial. Okay, whatever. So uh, I, I think it's really interesting because yesterday I was looking at, uh, uh, well, gosh, it was like uh, somewhere around 11 p.m. over here, California time, and uh, I was looking at the uh, the the uh, Bloomberg channel on. Uh, oh, what, what, what's their take on you know the European Open? Oh no, the European Open, and the European Open. They're like, oh well, you know. What if the debt ceiling gets held up and, and they start losing votes? And it's almost like they've been living for so long on this bad news that all they can do is look for more bad news. Like, oh, we need more bad news. We've been so used to bad news. There's, there's, there's got to be the potential for more bad news. So, so now it's like, oh, well, okay, that's, that's just a tentative deal. So, so yeah, what, what, what about when that starts uh, potentially going sideways because – Oh, I don't know. Jim Jordan's going to do something or or whatever. Or the progressive Democrats are going to take over. They're not going to vote for it. Oh, my gosh. Quite frankly, it's just exhausting. And it does make me wonder if, to some degree, some of the bears, uh, either whether it's just driven by the mainstream media or the mainstream media are bears or, or whatever, are starting to run out of arguments in terms of why the market should not recover. Uh, and then, of course, that's creating some of this idea of, okay, well, you know, is this just some kind of AI speculative bubble of the stock market? Who knows? But um, the good debt ceiling is good news. Uh, and now we have to kind of uh, hunt for new negative catalysts. And I think that uh, that a little bit makes uh, uh, some people uneasy. But who knows? We shall see. Uh, one of the things that I've been reading a lot about this weekend is this idea that uh, China is uh, a little bit um, lagging in terms of uh, its recovery. In fact, potentially a lot lagging in its recovery. Uh, a, a lot of research simply on this idea that China might have to stimulate a lot more than people previously thought just to get ahead because you've still got this massive headwind of the real estate sector. Which, it goes to show you how strong potentially the real estate sector really is in propping up uh, an economy. Because in China, you, you came out of a real estate bust uh, in uh, 2021 and 2022 uh, with somewhere between 30 to 40% declines. And really setting off this, this fear of, 
okay, well, wait a minute. If it's possible for real estate values to just drop 30 to 40%, maybe, just maybe, we ought to be a little bit more cautious with how we spend money. And, and that, unfortunately, is leading to a much slower economy in China uh, than people had originally hoped. Uh, now, it makes sense because, you know, who was it? It was... Um, uh, it was the Robert Schiller's university. I think that it was Princeton. Anyway, Princeton, uh, wherever, Robert Schiller was involved in writing the piece. And this idea was that it's not so much the stock market that leads you to spend more or less money. It's actually the real estate market that leads you to spend more or less money from a sort of a consumption point of view. And uh, you could see that without a doubt in China, this uh, idea of, okay, well, which economy is going to keep spending? Well, American. Uh, the American economy, because we haven't seen this sort of hit to a real estate market yet. Now, maybe, maybe uh, this hit will eventually come. Uh, Elon Musk, for example, suggested this weekend that it's coming. Uh, but uh, we're still not seeing that buildup of inventory. Uh, and uh, it'll be very, very interesting uh, to see how our uh, markets evolve over the next six months in real estate and uh, how that ends up driving our economy, whether we end up driving into a recession or not. Uh, so we shall see, but, uh, let's take a brief listen in over here and, uh, let's see what they've got to, ha to yap about on, uh, good old CNBC and we'll add some commentary in the house, probably, you know, nine, 10 PM. Oh man. And then in the Senate, it's largely just a question of when, not if, and if the Senate really wants to work all the way through the weekend, they can. Uh, but with Yellen pushing the X date out four days, that really gave lawmakers the, the air pocket they needed to, to land this plane. So let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what's in it. I, I take it you've read the 99 pages. Two years of discretionary spending caps. It pushes out the debt ceiling hike until January of 2025. Permitting reform, clawback of pandemic funds, and work requirements for programs like SNAP. Um, what does this mean for the markets? Uh, um, well, I mean, the, the big news is that the debt ceiling is raised until January 1st of 2025 and extraordinary measures are backfilled. So in reality, we probably won't have to deal with this uh, for, for two more years. Candidly, yeah. the other issues in the bill, there's not a whole lot there there for markets, with the exception of a, a boost in defense spending of a, 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 around. Honestly, I just can't take it anymore. That I'm just going to put it this way, okay? I just can't take it anymore. It seems like nonstop... And I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here, okay? But it just seems like for the last three weeks, all the news stations could talk about every single day, every single day is I feel like we've been around the block long enough to know that the debt ceiling was going to get passed. We said this with People ask me, but Kevin, it seems like we're getting closer to default this time. Or, or I mean, even course members are asking me. And I get it because it's all over the news. It's just constant. God, God, daily. And I'm like, we're raising the debt ceiling. It's going to happen. It's going to be dramatic, but it's going to happen. And people are like, well, what odds would you assign to it? Come on. And I'm like, fine. 99.9% .9 chance it's going to get raised. But there's just going to be a lot of drama between now and then. And it's just so exhausting. Because I think the last three weeks, every single time you turn on the news, whether it's Fox or CNN or it's CNBC or it's Bloomberg, it's nonstop. It's just death in, death in, death in, death in, death in. The United States has never defaulted. This is the first time we're going to default. We're going to do a Great Depression. There's going to be so much joblessness and the Fed can't save us. 
And it's the same crap over and over again. Honestly, I think I, I've become convinced that the mainstream media is driven by uh, nothing other than, okay, what is the next big fear catalyst? And okay, fair. Like, it, to some extent, especially if we're trading, we want to know what the next fear catalysts are. And we can go through some of those fear catalysts right now. Uh, but really, the, the exhausting nature of just this incessant fear over nothing drives me nuts. Uh, I'm a big fan of, like, real catalysts. Like, give me some actual real fear. Uh, and for me, uh, I actually agree with this, uh, this survey that was done over the weekend over, okay, what are the realistic next levels or, or rather the next fear catalyst that we should actually care about? Like, what are things we should care about? Uh, and the biggest response uh, in the survey came from, uh, well, a potential reignition, and this is a reasonable one, of inflation. And I thought, okay, well, finally, like this, this is actually like a reasonable point of view uh, because we don't, nobody really expects that uh, the next fear catalyst is, is going to be uh, the actual debt ceiling because at this point, this is over. So 41% of respondents were convinced uh, that the next fear catalyst is inflation. Uh, and uh, maybe not necessarily that we would end up getting a reignition of inflation, but that 41% of people believe the biggest worry the market should have is inflation. And, and that's fair. Because quite frankly, if we do get a reignition of inflation, th then we do actually have problems to worry about. Now we've got more to fall in the stock market because it's rallied more. Uh, we have the potential risk of being Paul Volcker. We have the de-anchoring of inflation expectations. And by far, I, I agree that probably the biggest risk to markets going forward is inflation. Now, that's remarkable because there really is a, there's really scant evidence of reigniting inflation. Natural gas prices in uh, Europe, for example, are at the lowest level they've been since uh, right before the invasion of Ukraine. It's, it's, it's insanely low. Uh, you've got uh, shorts piling up on OPEC, uh, well, basically on oil, uh, and OPEC's like, you better not start shorting because we're going to cut production. Meanwhile, they're talking about cutting production but so far, we haven't gotten an announcement on cutting production. So in other words, they're just trying to like manipulate the market. Of course, that's that's just what they do. Uh, so uh, you've got you've got that many people worried about inflation, uh, and then the next big fear is is re was recession, and this idea with recession is that okay, well, all right, fine. But here's the thing, Kevin: liquidity is going to kill the market. That was the next big fear catalyst that a lot of people were driving. And this idea is, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. The Treasury Department is going to have to reissue uh, bonds as they kind of run off. And then the markets might have to absorb these. Uh, and, and we're going to see all of this happening at the same time as you see quantitative tightening. And, and that's just going to suck all this money out of the economy. And then the economy is going to collapse. This, this is sort of the second like bear thesis. So one bear thesis is, okay, well, inflation... And then the second bear thesis is recession uh, and, and uh, liquidity crunch. What's crazy is, first of all, nobody really knows what's actually going to happen. But the odds are uh, things are probably not going to be as bad as feared. And a, a lot of uh, the, the sort of more moderate people who are just trying to understand the economy rather than like push either a bull or bear narrative – uh, a lot of folks are looking at the reverse repo facility and saying this is probably the best speed governor we have to suggest that even in a quantitative tightening scenario, 
we don't necessarily have to be that horribly worried about what's going to end up happening with liquidity because, quite frankly, we've got plenty of it. This right here on screen is uh, the amount of money sitting in the reverse repo facility. Now, now this gets a little confusing. Usually when I mention this, uh, I feel like people shut down. And I think there's a, a very easy way uh, to explain this. Uh, and uh, think about it like this, okay? If, if you were a bank, let's say you're a bank, and you're responsible for holding on to $1 million, let's just say. Uh, and... Uh, you have a choice. You could take that $1 million and, and you could lock it up into a six month or one year or five year or 10 year treasury notes. And you could lock that money up uh, and then you could earn, let's say, 4% on that money. But you have a lockup, right? This is your choice. You earn 4%. Maybe you even earn 5% on your money, but you have to lock up your cash. OK, remember, you're the banker now. Well, what, could, what risk could that pose if you lock up some of your cash as, as a banker? <laughs> well, we just all learned that in the last two months. You could suffer a bank run and then go bankrupt, <laughs> right? Uh, interesting where, where the phrases came from. So then you have this other option like, well, if I have $1 million, you could just take that money. And what if I told you this? Instead of locking it up, for six months plus, you could lock it up overnight. Oh, well, how much are you going to pay me to lock it up overnight instead of longer term? What if I told you you could actually earn the Fed rate of 5%? Obviously, on a banker's year divided by 360 days, so you're just going to earn one 360th of 5%, but you'll earn it every single night, which is the same as really holding treasuries because you're also earning interest. Essentially, you're accruing interest on a daily basis. Uh, so where would you rather put the $1 million? Uh, well, obviously, if you're a banker, uh, to some extent, you're having some money in treasuries because they all do. Uh, but to the extent that you're allowed to, because there's a limit here, you're going to put as much freaking money as you can right here in this overnight facility and this overnight facility is this it's the reverse repo facility and that reverse repo facility is sitting here with lots of money over 2.1 nearly 2.2 trillion dollars that's a lot of money and so what i'm finding is that the more neutral individuals who aren't trying to push a bear narrative or a bull narrative, they're saying, look, yes, we are going to go through a massive phase of quantitative tightening. But you what you have to consider is the Federal Reserve is just allowing treasury bills and bonds to expire at the rate of $80 billion per month. Now, that's fascinating because the reverse repo facility itself, during the beginning, during this first year and two months of quantitative tightening that we've already gone through because this started in March of 2022. We've already been at this now for 14 months. It's basically stayed stable, which is insane because a lot of people look at this as basically a parachute. And they say, okay, well, if you could take 2.1 uh, and divide it by $80 billion per month, well, how many months do you have? You have two years. You have about 26 months of money 
sitting right there. So in other words, if all of the money the Federal Reserve tightened on a monthly basis simply led banks to basically replenish those treasuries, as, and that's going to happen as rates start falling, uh, now all of a sudden you could actually delay the effects of quantitative tightening for another two years, which is insane. But again, generally to make this happen, you're going to start seeing interest rates come down. Now, this is why, uh, because now you're seeing that overnight rate go down and there's more of an incentive on treasuries. Long and short of it, there's this massive buffer uh, against this liquidity fear that people keep talking about. But I do find it very interesting because there is this, there's this almost desperation, I feel like, amongst uh, the bear narrative right now to find another reason why this economy has to collapse. And the reality is there isn't a good one. So now I'm seeing this constant talk about, but COVID, maybe the debt ceiling isn't the issue, but it's, it's liquidity. <laughs> like, okay. All right, here we go. What's that? What's the next argument going to be? And it's fine. I'm, I'm not here to be permabull. You know, somebody left me a comment the other day that easy for you to say you're just a permabull. I'm like, no, I'm the dude in a Hello Kitty cup who's going to sit here and flip flop on you immediately and tell you about it immediately when poopy doopy hits the fan and it's time to flip flop. That's it. I, 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 I like I'm not here to say I'm 100 percent perfect with my timing. Uh, I wish I originally sold earlier, like January 2022 was great. Wish I originally sold earlier. And maybe I wish I got into the market a little later. But I went from being completely out, one of the first finance YouTubers completely out, to basically being completely back in, uh, uh, you know, before, before this sort of Nike swoosh recovery. Uh, and so the point is, obviously facts are going to change. And I'm looking every single day trying to study what's the next negative catalyst. And quite frankly, the biggest negative catalyst that I see is China for, for people who invested in China. Uh, you know, I've, I've regularly said I'm, I'm afraid of investing in China because I, I don't personally fully understand what's going on in the government there. And, and I'm not going to profess to. But I also understand that the consumer has a very different mindset because they need to have a different mindset. Remember during COVID when China got locked down for like three freaking years? Guess who got the stimulus money? It was businesses. It wasn't people in China. That's why people in China ended up getting somewhere around one twelfth the amount of stimulus money that that we did here in America. It's remarkable. So uh, okay, so back to this this bearish uh, this idea. So inflation, which we have very few catalysts for suggesting that it's taking off again. Uh, the the argument that bears like to make when it comes to suggesting, okay, well we're definitely going to have more inflation, is this idea that it's going to be sticky. That inflation is just going to stay higher for longer, basically, uh, and the historical context doesn't play well for the bears here because the Federal Reserve isn't in a position where they are required to get inflation down ridiculously quickly. There's 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 no mandate that says, oh, we need to get inflation down to two percent immediately. That that doesn't exist. Instead, the Federal Reserve can embark on something known as opportunistic disinflation, which is exactly what they did in the early 80s, uh, through mid 80s, through the 90s and the early 2000s, as long as inflation expectations remain anchored. And after this debt ceiling deal was reached, what did we get? Oh, look, 
Inflation expectations are rotating right back down again. You can see them here on the market's expectation of inflation. It's the five-year break-even. Uh, and we're at 2.14. We're not at the super lowest level we've been, but you can see the downtrend over the last year. If you zoom out, there you go. Uh, pretty, pretty good downtrend. We've hit this lower area a few times. Uh, we're hitting some of the lowest levels now. This is a really a way of saying inflation expectations have been anchored since September, which is phenomenal. Worst case scenario, you see a skyrocketing of inflation expectations here, kind of like what you did in February. But this was really due to January data coming in pretty hot, thanks to potentially a warm winter. Uh, then you've got these year-over-year -year seasonal adjustments, big mess sort of in, in February in terms of the data. But a lot of that ended up being nonsense. So yes, people are, but Kevin, it's not falling as fast as expected. That's fine, though. And that isn't necessarily to suggest that the Federal Reserve has to uh, act in such a way that, uh, uh, you know, they, they just continue their march up. Uh, we could sit here for, for longer, essentially. That's the higher for longer argument. Now, what the market is pricing in right now is a 25 basis point hike uh, in uh, June with a 56.1% probability. So you're basically at a coin toss for a June hike. Now, Jerome Powell has said we are at a sufficiently restrictive level of, infl of, of interest rates. Uh, Neil Kashkari, who turned into one of your hawks, which was crazy because during COVID, he was super like, print, print, print. Uh, and uh, anyway, so he's become a hawk. And he's under this impression like, I've been convinced that we could pause in June and maybe hike again in July if we need to. Anyway, market, uh, despite all this, is pricing in a 50% chance of a pause here. Well, basically 56% chance of a hike. 44% uh, chance of a, a pause in June. Uh, by July, interestingly, the market is pricing in a 22% a chance of two hikes. Uh, and then uh, you really don't get to a, uh, a one-third cut, one-third hold, or one-third you're at 5.25, hold being five, uh, until January. Uh, sorry, that's until uh, December. And then you can pretty much confirm a cut by January. So anything... 2023 is relatively uncertain for uh, for the market pricing and cuts uh, as of the latest read, which is fascinating because that was actually another one of the bear arguments. Another bear argument was, but Kevin, as soon as the market starts pricing out these rate cuts that the market has been pricing in, well, then the market's going to crash. And it's fascinating because, once again, so far that has not been happening. And maybe it is just AI that's driving that. May, may, maybe. Who knows? But it's fascinating because if you look at the WERP, the world interest rate probability, this is what you're looking at right now. You're looking at uh, the, the peak rate being priced in here for July. And you're looking at being above 5% until basically December. That's what the market is pricing in right now. So all of a sudden... All of this, oh, the first cut's coming in July or September or whatever. All of that has already been priced out of the market. And what has happened in the last few weeks? The market's done nothing but go straight up. And so it goes to show that interest rates really aren't the biggest driver of fears right now. So the biggest drivers of fear are a second wave of inflation followed by a recession uh, of fear. And this recession fear is, is probably more appropriate than even the inflation one, just because there are so few indications of inflation skyrocketing. And the recession one argues that, well, come Q3, Q4, 
companies uh, and, and consumers are going to be in a position where everybody's just magically going to stop spending uh, and, uh, and, and we're going to go into an earnings recession. And what I find remarkable about this is Nike had its earnings recession. Nike was the first company to have its earnings recession in 2022. The chip stocks had their earnings recession in Q3, uh, in Q3 to Q1. Look at their earnings. Negative year-over-year earnings. Uh, the, the consumer staples are just now beginning their earnings recession. You look at Home Depot. You look at Lowe's. You look at Costco. The, the, the earnings recession wave has already been happening for a year now. And so this idea, oh, well, well Kevin, we're going to go into an official recession. Okay, maybe. That, that is a risk factor. But then we have to ask ourselves, but does that necessarily mean all of a sudden the stock market collapses? And the question here is, well, that depends. What is inflation doing? See, if we go into a recession and inflation is soaring again and expectations of inflation have unanchored, we're screwed. Then we get Paul Volcker. Then I turn into a bear again and I have to flip-flop again. But if we are in a, uh, a, a, you know, a technical recession, much like Germany is right now, well, then all of a sudden you look and you go, okay, so Germany is in a technical recession. But remember what that actually means. And I think when we look at the basic concept of what a recession is, it's actually not that scary. Because think about this for a moment. If I told, like, what would you prefer, okay? Would you, would you uh, rather grow like this, okay? Or uh, would you prefer uh, this kind of growth and then a little bit of this and then you continue, okay? So, so obviously, this one has substantially more growth than just sort of this example I made here. And I'm just being extreme. But the point of this is to say that, see this right here? That could technically be a recession because maybe you've gone negative for two quarters in a row. Now, <laughs> it's fascinating because your growth is, you know, what you're like, your output is substantially higher than what it was previously. And what I think is so interesting is that as Germany is technically into a recession and people are like, but Kevin, if we go into a recession, the stock market's going to plummet. Really? Okay, well, let's look at Germany's recession. You ready for what Germany's recession looks like? There's an index that's kind of like the Dow Jones in Germany. It's called the DAX. It consists of 40 German blue chip companies, okay? Do you want to see what recession looks like in Germany? Just Google DAX stock market. And what are you going to get? You're going to get all-time highs over the last year, baby. <laughs> so wait a minute. Wait a minute. Well, I thought if we go into a recession, the stock market was supposed to crash. And now this is the argument that as long as inflation is gone, nobody's going to give a crap if we go into a technical recession. Who gives a, oh, Q3, Q4 recession? Oh, look at Germany. Why does nobody care? Because there's no, like, th th there's no leading indicator that suggests we're going to see this massive second wave of inflation. If anything, a slight technical recession reiterates that we won't. So then you really end up with the last big catalyst, which is policy. And I, this is just what's been so exhausting on the mainstream media is that, oh, it's, 
Well, it's politics. Oh, just wait. Just I'm already I'm already seeing it now. I'm already seeing it now. People going, oh, but Kevin, there's an election coming up. Oh, <laughs> like that, that's that's just when you know we've run out of bad news. Now again, I'm not saying we can't get more bad news. In fact, we've got a, quite a few catalysts coming up. Consider some of the catalysts coming up. The first big catalyst that you've got coming up uh, is a price increase for all the courses on Building Your Wealth link down below. Whether it's investing in real estate, investing in stocks, you learn everything that I know over my entire career about investing in real estate, getting wedge deals, building your net worth, buying below market value real estate, everything I know about stocks and psychology of money, and then everything I know about making more money that is running a business, insurance, being an entrepreneur, or being an employee, how to get a promotion, how to make more money. How to, how to be a model employee and provide more value. Like, how do we do that? And the AI lecture is coming soon. All of those courses get a price increase on uh, uh, June 1st at 11.59 p.m. So join before that. That's actually in like two days. So in two days, we have an expiration coming up. Keep in mind, there are various different courses. You can bundle them up. You can bundle them up on the website or email staff at meetkevin.com if you'd like uh, to, to talk to us. Uh, and, um, keep in mind, they all come with lifetime access to the course member live streams, which is pretty cool because every day the market is open uh, right around the time the bell rings. Uh, we, uh, we go through analysis, fundamental analysis on either real estate or stocks or whatever. And, and we chat, which is great. So check that out all via the link down below. So now, yes, there are market catalysts as well. Like for example, tomorrow morning, we're going to get the jolts, the job openings and labor turnover survey. The last time we got surprised to the downside that these were starting to get absorbed. Tomorrow, we're expecting about 9.4 million uh, job openings. We'll see what happens. This slips down more. It's a good sign that we're finally bringing the labor market back into balance and eliminates these fears about a wage price spiral. Uh, tomorrow, uh, you're also going to be getting, uh, let's see here, we'll get a beige book from the Fed that's going to be relatively boring. Uh, and then you're going to wait for about a Thursday, which is June 1st, price increase day. You're going to be getting the ADP jobs report. Uh, that is going, that's actually going to be quite interesting. We're looking at 165 jobs, 165,000 jobs. Uh, on Thursday as well, we'll get the ISM prices paid survey. Uh, and then we will also on Friday, we'll have a big catalyst. We'll have the jobs report coming out, which is fantastic. Jobs report will be a big deal. We're looking for average hourly earnings on a month-over-month -month basis, moving about 0.3%. And uh, you're going to be looking for the change in private payrolls to be about 173,000, non-farm payrolls to be about 190,000. Uh, then we're going to get some PMIs and, and ISM numbers. This is where we'll get these sort of individualistic reports on prices paid which are relatively useful for understanding, okay, what are some leading indicators of inflation? So far, those leading indicators of inflation have been relatively soft. Uh, so I'm not going to go through all of these. Really, the next big catalyst you want to pay attention to is, of course, June 13th, which will be CPI day. We do have a forecast already. We are looking at, wow, uh, that's, oh my gosh, that'll be remarkable. Uh, we are looking at, uh, first of all, the non, the more basic part, month over month CPI expected to come in at 0.3. We're looking for CPI core to come in at 0.4, core four, little sticky. Uh, but again, as long as inflation expectations are low, th th it's not actually a horrible thing. As long as things slowly start trending down and we start seeing that housing rollover as well as services rollover, and we're not seeing some kind of new liftoff. 
Uh, year over year, though, we're looking at CPI coming in at going from 4.9 to 4.1, a massive drop. I mean, that's an eight-point drop right there on uh, the CPI year over year. A lot of that, though, will have to do with energy, given that our core year over year will still be sitting at 5.3, but that, that will be good. Uh, the next day, you're going to have a PPI coming out, producer price index, along with the Federal Reserve uh, Open Market Committee uh, expectation for either a rate hike or a pause. The present forecast by, by surveyors, even though the market is pricing in about a 56% chance of a 25 BP hike, economists are still pricing in a pause. So we'll see what happens uh, from the Fed. But, but those are probably your, your catalysts here. And, and quite frankly, I, I'm just not seeing a, a big reason for massive volatility in, in these numbers. Obviously, we're going to report them. We're going to review them in detail. But I, I don't know. I, I may, maybe I'm just missing like the, the, the bare thesis. But it's just been very weak. I guess that's just the easiest way to put it. Uh, and I, I really don't think there's anybody who reads more earnings calls or economist letters or bear pieces from Goldman or Bank of America or Morgan Stanley than me. Because that's just what I, I do. I, I sit around and I read this stuff all day long. I actually find it incredibly interesting. And the arguments have just been really weak. Uh, I, I mean, again, it, it goes back to sort of like when you start having the bears uh, have to either lie about data or make up data. That's when I start going, really? Is there that little bearish news? Uh, and, and so some of, sometimes I see that. Uh, and I've called it out on Twitter before as well when I see it or here on the channel. But uh, again, if, if I get some bearish news, I'm <laughs> happy to report it. But but so far, I think, um, you know, I, I um, uh, you know, this, this is not the market to sit out on. Uh, in fact, I hate to say it, but I think this is pot quite potentially the greatest uh potential mispositioning that that our generation will have ever seen uh or I should say that people will have ever seen in a generation since I know people of various generations watch me uh I think this could be the greatest mispositioning you know and, and I'm not here to, to 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 like say somebody you know did something wrong or whatever like everybody everybody makes mistakes and everybody does things great right and and your goal is just to do more things correctly and less things wrong. That's that's always everything any human could could hope to do is just to make less mistakes. That's everybody's goal. And I, I unfortunately I, I really worry that the 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 carrot of oh well put all your money in you know Robinhood five percent Wealthfront five and a quarter percent so five five percent like all this noise has potentially created some of the biggest mispositioning in over a generation. And uh, it'll be really remarkable uh, to see what happens when and if we start getting a, a, that money flowing back into the economy. Think, for example, what the Wall Street Journal is suggesting. The Wall Street Journal suggests that what's driving the stock market right now isn't retail investors because they're mostly positioned in mutual funds, is at least what the Wall Street Journal says. It's actually just funds like institutions, quant funds. Uh, there's a page uh, on, on their um, – homepage talking about this and I was reading through it and I'm like, my gosh, this is, this is terrible for, for average Americans who once again, will get screwed and missing out. Uh, and it, it's so frustrating because it's like you get shaken out and, and then you don't know when to come back in. And, it, and it's, it's like, because there's so much bearish news. 
Uh, and it just sucks because uh, it makes it so much harder to build wealth. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, you know, so some, somebody here says, uh, well, Tom Baker donated $5 to say, as a business owner, earnings are going down due to increased labor costs, insurance and benefits and transportation costs post-COVID. Will this continue? Uh, no, I actually don't think so. In fact, we've already seen transportation costs start plummeting. Maybe not necessarily like airfares, right? But freight. You look at freight, it's a leading indicator of transportation. Freight is in a recession. You just Google the words freight recession and you'll see all the evidence you need. And uh, really this this uh, it, high labor costs, labor costs will stay high. It's not like all of a sudden people's wages are going to turn into deflation. Not anytime soon, at least. Uh, with the exception of jobs that are at risk of being displaced because of uh, artificial intelligence, which is a real issue. This is why you should learn everything you can about AI. But anyway, uh, from the perspective of an employee or business owner. But anyway, uh, as as far as continually increasing uh, labor costs or insurance costs, I, I don't think that's that's um, that's something that we we terribly need to be concerned about. Uh, yeah, there, there will be more increases in the future. Don't get me wrong, but but nothing like what we've seen in the past. A lot of uh, these these massive jumps we're seeing are are uh, you know still playing catch up of, of some of the COVID era. People are pushing high yield ETFs, says Max. Yeah, you know I, what I think is wild about this is a lot of these high yield ETFs. What they actually do is they sell calls to to make money. Uh, so uh, let's see here. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to look up some. So what they try to do is they try to sell calls to make money which is great because you get a yield. Uh, for example, like there's some high yield ETFs that'll, that'll uh, offer you, I don't know, like 5% dividends owning Tesla stock. And it's like, how is that possible? How could you own Tesla stock and get a 5% yield? This is incredible. The reason it's happening is because they're shorting you on the upside. They are shorting the upside to pay you a dividend. And I just want to be crystal clear, like it is moronic unless you are in retirement to be investing in dividends or anything that's paying you a yield, in my opinion. OK, now I'm sorry, that's aggressive. Maybe it's offensive, both, whatever. But the point is, when you invest in yield bearing crap, what you're doing is saying, hey, ah, the R uh, and the S, I got a check coming. End of this year, man, I'm going to give you a chunk of all these divvies I've been getting. Aren't you excited? Whereas the long-term holder of stocks or real estate is like, hey, IRS, catch you next year, maybe. <laughs> like, why are you giving your money away? There's no reason to do this. And then people are like, oh, but Kevin, I'm investing in a retirement account. Well, like if you're investing in a retirement account, it reiterates why you don't need those dividends. And if you're chasing dividends, you're again, you're shorting your upside. Uh, and so this idea of like, oh, well, I'm going to get 5%, fine. But what's your opportunity cost? 20%, 30, 40% on some of these, these stocks coming out of the bear cycle? Uh, it, 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 doesn't make, it doesn't make much sense to me. So uh, and anyway, my goal is, is to really be um, you know, as transparent as possible about uh, my fears and concerns in the market. And, and my fear is that we have a massive mispositioning for people. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not happy about that because, you know, unfortunately, uh, I think a lot of people could end up missing out. But uh, anyway, we'll see what happens. So, so those are some of my takes about this sort of bear cycle, 
on the mainstream media and the news cycle, some upcoming catalysts. And uh, hopefully this adds some uh, insight. Uh, and of course, if you're interested in more detail on my perspectives, make sure you join those course member live streams and we can uh, conduct more in-person Q&A as well as uh, fundamental analysis. So I look forward to seeing you there. All right. With that said, let's jump on over here. What are they talking about regarding real estate? Let's listen. The all-important jobs report on Friday. Back to you guys. But Diana, yeah, no, what, what's more important? They Actually, it says debt ceiling. They were talking about the debt ceiling. Are you serious? of dwellings of all kinds or, or the higher mortgage rates? Are, are prices uh, reflecting higher rates? Uh, I think prices have, look, prices have cooled off a bit, but not as much as we might like. We did see them start to strengthen in the spring market because there's so little supply. As you said, Joe, I think it's a supply issue. Um, I don't want, what do you mean I, I might like prices? <laughs> I don't want to, I want them to keep going. <laughs> I already got, I already have it. All right. Uh, if you're a buyer. Or a yeah, but it depends on if you're a buyer. So uh, Diana, depends on which side of the fence you're on. <laughs> exactly. And we know about fences. They make for good neighbors. Uh, thanks, Diane. <laughs> when we come back, Business Roundtable CEO Josh Bolton joins us with his take on the debt deal in Washington and how it could impact the oh nation's biggest companies. Plus, Mohammed El Arian on the Fed and much more. Stay tuned. Squawk Box will be right. It's just exhausting. Now, we'll listen to Mohammed and his team. I mean, he's always got some, some interesting stuff to complain about when it comes to the Fed. Which, uh, but he's also relatively realistic, so we'll see what he's got to say. But, um, uh, yeah. So, rest of the world is hurting. I mean, I don't know about that. Europe, Europe isn't doing horribly. Uh, but, uh, yeah, China is definitely softening. But then again, isn't this kind of like what we've been talking about for the last few years? Is this idea that, how can you bet against America? You can't. You can't bet against America. You don't have like people are like, oh, but Kevin, you should allocate to emerging markets. The best emerging market is right here in America. Uh, <laughs> and want another Adani or 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 whatever. I don't know. It's it's uh, it's out of out of my wheelhouse for sure. So I don't know. don't ask me about it. You know, the only the only like the only other foreign market that would be interesting might be, maybe it's like Canada, just because they've had such a real estate dip. But that's for real estate purposes, not so much about stocks. So um you think about dividend stocks like Starbucks or Bank of America. I mean, same thing with what I just said regarding dividends. But you also have to be careful. I mean, I I first personally I'm a big fan of staying away from banks in recessionary times. Um, who knows though, if the recessionary times are going away and the banking crisis is going over, maybe there's a big opportunity there. Bank balance sheets are so complicated though. And this is something I've said for years. I, I can't really analyze them. Uh, and I think we really saw that come to fruition in this last, uh, you know, banking crisis here where, you know, you look at the balance sheets and, and you think everything's fine, but then sure. It's a loophole like hell to mature uh, maturities. Uh, that, that don't end up showing up appropriately on the bank balance sheet. And then you get screwed, you know, and you get this, this massive correction bank stock. So it's, it's much more difficult to fundamentally analyze entities that are so extremely complicated. Uh, you know, something like Starbucks is a lot easier to analyze. But then you look at the valuation of Starbucks, and it's just insane. I've been waiting for this sucker to get to like 70 or 80 bucks, and it's just, it just won't. It's finally started trending down again. Because I've been begging for this sucker to go down. I'm like, this is stupid. Starbucks needs to come down. It is way too overvalued. Please, $70 to 
I've been complaining and, and begging for it. I watch it. I got my little Fibonacci's. You know, it's it, it finally started trending down a bit. You look over here, you're finally coming off that 110, 100, and you're sitting at like 98 bucks right now. But, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the 80s over here, which I know we had in, uh, you know, April of 2022 or whatever. But I would have rather bought, you know, some of the other mega caps uh, uh, that, that were suffering than, than Starbucks because I think, you know, they're going to be what's what's driving this next uh, this next sort of potential, hopeful, knock on wood, 10-year bull cycle, uh, which we don't know if we're going to get that. But, uh, you know, my, my thesis has been this Nike swoosh. Uh, I thought it was going to be a much more elongated Nike swoosh, and I still believe that uh, that elongated would be sort of like you look at it on sort of a month basis, right? And uh, you end up with this elongated uh, trend upwards, hopefully, no, no guarantees. But I think the next decade is going to be uh, or should be relatively optimistic. Uh, of course, there'll always be another recession in the future. Markets are cyclical, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Let's listen in over here. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan. And oh, that's such a great line. Uh, Live Nation CEO says you're always either in a recession or heading into one. You know, I think that's a great line, actually. Right now, the Dow futures are off by about 12 points, but you continue to see some pretty big gains, in fact, uh, moving up with the NASDAQ. NASDAQ right now indicated up almost by 200 points. S&P futures up by close to 25. And then if you take a look at what's been happening with the Treasury market, you'll see that at least right now, it looks like the 10-year is yielding 3.712%. The two-year still about 4.5% at 4.506%. If you check out the short end of the curve, you have seen yields move back down for the one month. Yeah, all the way down yeah. to 5.272%. Uh, we had been up as high as 5.8% or just north of that. So you are seeing that contract as you hear more about this uh, deal to extend the debt, the debt ceiling. One year, by the way, also at 5.25%. And as you know, what I wonder is like, what is dragging the Dow down? Uh, so I'm going I'm to look at that in just a moment. Hold on, let's listen to this. Chip giant NVIDIA. The company crossing the threshold this morning in pre-market uh, trading, it is currently, as you can see, up $17 uh, at $406. And uh, it was up about 25% last week following a strong earnings report. And then this past weekend, the company's CEO introduced a new supercomputer platform at an event in Taiwan. Other stocks on the move, uh, car makers Tesla and Ford, uh, Barclays, reiterating its overweight rating on Tesla this morning, and Jeffries upgrading Ford uh, to buy from hold. Right now, let's send things over to our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli. Good morning, Mike. What are you watching this morning? And what do you think explains the weakness in the Dow futures, especially relative to yeah. what we've seen with the NASDAQ? Yeah, Becky, it's honestly a little more of the same in terms of the uneven performance of different parts of this market. And you have almost all this enthusiasm among the buyers chasing the momentum in a narrow group of AI-related stocks. That's what's goosing the NASDAQ. It's helping the S&P. Here's the S&P 500 index fund, the SPY. You see it's breaking out of this range, 420 on the S&P, uh, 420 on the SPY, 4200 on the S&P. Has been a bit of a ceiling. The NASDAQ is carrying this up from here. You know, people keep talking about how this is a very unimpressive gain from the October lows, if in fact it is a new uh, bull trend. But it's been pretty steady. I keep pointing out, yeah. you know, it hasn't threatened the prior lows. It's steady progress, but also a lot of unevenness under the surface. So those Dow stocks are full of a lot of the financials and industrials that are not as much participating. If you go back 18 months, though, you can see this split market look not so split anymore. People have been very concerned that NASDAQ 100 
Hydro, which is up 30 percent year to date, has been consuming all the oxygen in the market. And that has been a very, very aggressive move there by the Nasdaq. <laughs> hey, this sounds really familiar. Now, I want to talk. I will look, I'm just going to take over and I want to talk about the Dow because I think this is really interesting. Why is the Dow red and the Nasdaq so green? I mean, the Dow's negative and the Nasdaq's up like 1% in pre-market. What is going on? Why, why would that be happening to the Dow Jones? And first, I want to remind you of, of this thesis that I had very quickly. Uh, and then let's break it down a little bit and see what's happening just in pre-market. And, and maybe we'll just look at some charts together here. But remember my thesis. My thesis has been that in 2022... Everybody's afraid of the recession. What do people do? They position into staples. They're like sheep, okay? Just picture sheep, and you're not sheep. But but the masses, okay? The, the people with like, oh no, uh, fund manager, what do I do with my retirement account? <laughs> well, sir, we're going into a recession, so you know what they say. You still got to buy toothpaste, so you better get yourself into staples. Stop. Uh, you know, and, and, and we're like, who the hell wants staples? Uh, in 2023, because you get companies like Kimberly Clark and the CEO of Kimberly Clark, I kid you not, read the earnings call, going, we are not going to drop the prices for our bath tissue because we are going to innovate. And it's just like complete trash, okay? <laughs> this idea that like staples are going to be able to drive the recovery is completely stupid, okay? All right, that's been my thesis. So what is the Dow Jones heavily exposed to? Well, uh, let's take a look. We're going to go through it right now. So we jump on over to the charts right here. One of the first ones they're exposed to is Walmart, which Walmart has done very, very well. This is the month chart of Walmart. So we're going to drop out to, to the day chart over here. Uh, and you start to see, okay, on the day chart, we're starting to slow down a little bit. In fact, pre-market, you're down about a quarter of a percent. Uh, at the same time, you've got some of these more growthy names like Tesla up 3.6%. You've got Salesforce up, uh, Salesforce is up 2.56%. You've got NVIDIA is up 4%, 5% in pre-market right now. Uh, and you can see the NASDAQ's up about 1.5%. 1, 1 of course, there's this idea that, oh, well, maybe it's bubbly, right? But I want you to see the repositioning that's happening in the market. You're going to look at these mega cap names, and they're mostly green by a substantial portion. You saw Walmart was down about a quarter of a percent. Well, what are some other ones? 3M is a down stock. It's only up about 0.14%, missing a lot of this rally. Procter & Gamble is another one. Look at that. You're seeing you hit a ceiling. You hit that ceiling somewhere around April. You haven't moved terribly much, uh, and you're starting to see this downtrend. What's another uh, one? Let's go to Boeing stock. Boeing's up maybe about 0.14% what, 1.8% here, but also you've kind of hit a ceiling here. In fact, you're down almost 10% from some of the highs that you saw in about February when people started getting a little bit less nervous about the market. Uh, you look at home or even inflation. You look at Home Depot, what's happened with Home Depot? Also, you kind of hit a ceiling in December when people were tax loss harvesting all of the tech stocks and tech was at some of its lows. You hit your ceiling at Home Depot. And now all of a sudden from Home Depot, you're down somewhere around 15% and you're trending down. What's another one? Lowe's. Lowe's is actually up about half percent right now, but also relatively flat. You're not seeing that sort of uh, participation in some of that rally that's going on. How about Chevron? Look at this. Chevron, your energy stocks down 0.7% here. This is another Dow stock. How about Goldman Sachs? Another Dow stock. Goldman Sachs, a financial flat to trending down. I mean, this, this thing's down almost... 
what is this, uh, 50 points or so that you're down over here? I mean, you're down over 10% on Goldman Sachs as well. J&J, &J, another consumer staple, down a quarter of a percent. Look at this bleed out that you're getting on Johnson & Johnson since January, a full-on bleed out. Uh, another one, I actually think Intel, look, Intel, oh, Intel, finally, it's up 3%. Uh, I was going to say, Intel is another Dow stock that has just been not keeping up with the chip rally. Uh, I think Intel is either going to prove itself as a valuable fabricator of chips, or it's going to die the death of a value trap. So that one, TBD. Uh, Honeywell, another Dow stock, down about a quarter of a percent. How about Coca-Cola? Everybody wants to drink Coca-Cola. Warren Buffett loves Coca-Cola, right? Also, turning red here pre-market, but you're seeing this lid. Look at how long you've seen a lid. <laughs> you've literally not hit a new high since April of 2022. Because everybody, oh no, we're going into recession. Everybody dives into Coca-Cola because you're still going to buy Coca-Cola, right? Fantastic. How far does that narrative take you? Not far. You get to a new high and then you don't break a new high again. This is, this is how consumer staples trade. They're a fear trade. And as soon as the fear starts fading, the inflation fears go away, uh, then all of a sudden these industrials and these staples become a whole lot less interesting. And then people are like, but Kevin, they pay dividends. And it's like, okay, man, suck on your dividends. Uh, you know, what's what's another one? We've got Dow Chemicals, right? And not to be confused with the Dow Jones. I do think it's interesting that Dow Chemicals is, has made it into the Dow. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you're, you're on a downtrend. Dow Chemicals hit its high during some of the peak fear that we saw in Q2 recession times of last year. You've been down since then. Disney is another Dow stock. Disney, it's actually green, but it's it's been bleeding. This sucker's been a bleeder of a stock. What's another one? Verizon's in the Dow. Uh, Verizon, full bleed. I mean, look at this. You were at 50 bucks. Now you're at 35 over the last year. Complete bleed out over here of, of, of some of these, these names. McDonald's was another huge one that people flocked to uh, during this, this recessionary fear. And McDonald's still doing relatively well. Uh, but you're you're starting to see potentially some of that curve where people are going, okay, it is officially time to get out of the staples. I personally think that's going to continue to happen. Walgreens, Boot Alliance, here's another one. Walgreens, look at the last year. It's a complete bleed out at Walgreens. I mean, you've gone from, uh, geez, you, I mean, Walgreens has a little bit of COVIDness in it. Walgreens hit its high during COVID because everybody's going in for the boosters. Couldn't break out of that in January of 2022. It's just been a bleed out since then. All of these stocks that I just went through, they're all Dow stocks. And so in a weird way, it actually might be reasonable to see the Dow Jones completely negative, while at the same time, the NASDAQ is positive. Now, again, some people are going to argue, but Kevin, it's, it's an AI bubble. Maybe, but let me ask you this. Ignoring for a moment this potential for market mispositioning, what what do you think is going to be more innovative between 2023 and 2030? Just the next seven years. What's going to innovate more? Now, now, okay, now I want you to think about that, okay? What, what is going to innovate more? Keep that in the back of your mind. And now I want to ask you, is it going to be Group A, companies like Caterpillar, Chevron, Goldman Sachs, Home Depot, IBM, McDonald's, 3M, Procter & Gamble, Verizon, Walgreens, Dow Chemicals, and Walmart. Is it going to be that group 
Okay, so so think about that. Uh, that is that's about fifteen ish names that I just read you from the Dow Jones, the Dow Thirty. Okay, is it going to be companies like that, or is it going to be Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Nvidia, AMD, Taiwan Semiconductors, Tesla? Those are your Nasdaq names. So you make your bets, but I personally. You know, it's obviously your own personal decision what you do. I mean, you know I'm a licensed financial advisor, but this isn't financial advice uh, for you. It's not personalized financial advice. I don't know what your situation is. Maybe you're retired. I don't know. Maybe you were just born and you're listening to this because you're in a cradle next to mom and dad. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what your situation is. You know, I can't. I don't know. Uh, but uh, what the point is, if I had to make a bet, I'd rather make a bet on the companies that I actually think are going to drive innovation over the next you know, decades. So uh, is it a surprise why the Dow is bleeding when you stack it up like that? Nope, <laughs> not at all, <laughs> you know, not at all, uh, in my opinion. You know, somebody here in the chat's mentioning Target. You know what's funny about Target? It's not a Dow stock. It's not a Dow 30 stock. <laughs> so that's uh, kind of crazy. Uh, I, somebody asked me, by the way, just now in the chat, how was uh, uh, Frisco, uh, SF? Terrible. So I took my uh, I took my family to uh, uh, to SF. We visited my brother-in-law, and uh, it was really cool. Uh, we uh, it was a nice sort of extended uh, weekend here. Uh, we we went up uh, Friday and we came back yesterday. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you, there is nothing better than taking your family and going somewhere not SF because SF. Let me quickly say was terrible. It was scary. It was disgusting. I mean. San Francisco is just depressing. Hopefully it turns around because it should be beautiful, but it wasn't. So we actually left and we went to Palo Alto. Okay, now this was remarkable. You want to hear remarkable? I'm playing with these, like with my kids and these other kids come up. I mean, you know, all these kids are playing at these, these parks in Palo Alto. Like beautiful, okay? Fixer upper, three bedroom, two bath, 2.99 million, okay? Crazy prices. So I'm playing. Uh, with my kids on this park, Jack's flying a drone, then he comes over and we're playing on this little uh, uh, thing where you could spin around on or whatever. And Max is sitting down and then this little like 19 month old girl walks over and she sits down and I'm pushing the thing around and, and you know, playing with the kids and having fun and stuff. Uh, all of a sudden, Chamath walks up uh, and he's talking to his wife and the 19 month old girl is Chamath's child. I'm spinning Chamath's child around on 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 uh, on a playground in Palo Alto, and I'm like, I'm clearly in a different world up here in Palo Alto because now all of a sudden I'm spinning a billionaire's child around, and there's nothing abnormal about this. <laughs> like nobody is freaking out. <laughs> there are no cops. There's no security. There's nothing, and it's just like, okay, that's Palo Alto for you. So that was really cool, uh, and uh, and and I, I really enjoyed. Um, Kind of having like no itinerary for once, because usually my schedule is very like regimented and no itinerary for once was very nice. And mostly because it's sort of like, what do we want to do now? And the kids are like, let's go buy Nerf guns and have a Nerf battle. And then it's like, yeah, let's do that. And, you know, so that that was uh, that was kind of cool. So um, very, very, very cool, uh, benign family uh, weekend uh, with uh, with with a lot of uh, surprising entertainment. So enjoy that with the exception of SF. We had to leave SF. 
we went there Friday and we left Friday. <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway. So uh, anyway, th that's my take on like staples and, and that. Uh, yeah, yeah. McDonald's is an AI play. Oh my God. <laughs> Sell that narrative to somebody else. <laughs> okay. So. Mm, 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 mm. All righty. Next up. Who are we going to talk about now? I don't know. We got some data coming out in like nine minutes. So uh, let's see here. The data coming out. No, we don't. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> uh, data actually doesn't come out until. Wait, when does this come out? 9 a.m.? Oh, okay. So 6 a.m. we'll get. Um... FH, FA, house price index comes out. In 40 minutes, and then we get some core logic data. And yeah, all right, that's kind of boring. Oh, here's Mohammed. Mohammed! Mohammed, we've been waiting for you. All right, let's listen into what he says about the Fed. Look, my working assumption from the beginning was that we will somehow sort it out. And it seems like it's being sorted out. I mean, I would very much echo what Josh Bolton just said. It is absolutely necessary for this agreement to get through Congress if we are to avoid shooting ourselves in the foot again. All right, if that's the case, let's turn our attention to the next issue at hand, and I guess that has to be the Fed meeting in two weeks. Steve Leisman came on in the last hour and said that he thinks the idea of a pause is more likely to be off the table at this point just because the, the data has not been anything that the Fed could say, okay, here's a reason why we should pause. Yeah, so I put a piece out earlier this morning saying that if you take the Fed at its word, which is that they are excessively data dependent, then given the data, that they would find it hard to pause. Now, between now and the next meeting, we have a CPI report and we have a jobs report, so this could change. The problem is that because the Fed is so data dependent, even the Fed itself is all over the map. You have those <laughs> who think we should pause. You ha have those who think we should skip, meaning you pause now, but you hike at the next one. You have those who think we should hike and even have one person who thinks that we shouldn't have hiked. So, you know, this is the problem when you lack a strategic underpinning is that the data can swing you around. And with that, we swing the two-year and, and all over the place. We've yeah. had a number of people who have come on and said, if you're not looking at the banks, if you're not looking at real estate, if you're not looking at the housing market, well, then things look great. How, how much of an impact do those arenas, though, have on the overall economy? So I think it is necessary for certain sectors to deflate. And that is because inflation has migrated from the goods sector to the service sector. And the service sector is less sensitive to interest rates. So... The bits in the goods sector, housing being the perfect example, that are very sensitive to interest rates are going to get beaten up. And that's what has happened. We also have private markets that are slower moving, but you've got over a trillion of commercial real estate that has to be refinanced. So I do think there are bits that are feeling the impact of um, the interest rate. Now, the one that I'm not ready to assume away is bank credit. <coughs> We simply don't know at this point what's going to happen to bank credit. And it's important to keep an open mind on this. Okay. So 
What would you be telling people to do at this point? We've heard other people say that the markets seem frothy, especially if you're looking at some of the technology stocks that are really riding AI. On the other hand, you've got NVIDIA turning in some incredibly strong numbers and even stronger uh, expectations about what they can deliver in the future. So we've seen the emergence of what I call all weather stocks, stocks that have one or both of these attributes. They are seeing, they're seen to be riding a massive secular wave, multi-year, NVIDIA is an example of that. Or alternatively, they're seen as not being sensitive to economic and financial fluctuation. Think of Microsoft as an example of that. And those stocks have basically, as you've heard, as you heard earlier, done all the heavy lifting for the indices. Um, and that's why the Nasdaq's outperforming, that's why the S&P is in positive territory, and that's why the Dow has struggled so much. So the bet so far has been on these handful of stocks, and that makes sense. I worry more about the other stocks that are sensitive to the Fed making another mistake, and if they hike, it will be a mistake in my, in my mind, but then I have a much more strategic view of monetary policy, or alternatively, if credit proves to be a problem. <clears throat> Do you like this debt deal, Mohammed, or would you have preferred a clean raise? So I am, I'm, I'm not as enough of a specialist, honestly, to, to know whether which is better. You never um, met a you never met a, a Democratic spending bill you didn't like. <laughs> you may very well think so, but that's not correct. Okay, but now you don't know enough to know whether you like. I'd rather have a clean bill or, or what's in this bill. Oh, you, you really don't know what your so, opinion so Joe, is on that. Joe, I have, I have limited time. So my working assumption from day one was this thing was going to get resolved. From what I hear, it's not going to make a material difference to the economic and financial outlook. When we look back, this, this agreement will not make a material difference to it. Um, what I was more, much more worried about is non-agreement. So I'm, I'm pleased that they have, they have an agreement, but I can't honestly opine as to all the alternative permutations that we could have had, because I'm not, nowhere near those negotiations. I mean, do you think the, 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 uh, the debt is too high as is, and, and that maybe having a, some type of restraint over in 2023, 24, and 25, it, it, are you for that? Is that a good idea, or do you think we ought to keep piling it on? No, I don't think we should keep on piling it on. I think the best response to a debt issue, and we do have a longer-term debt issue, not an immediate debt issue, but a longer-term debt issue, is economic growth. And my biggest worry is this whole saga has done three things that actually undermine economic growth. One, it has diverted the attention of Congress for weeks. Keep going. Two, it has undermined the trust of the American people in our policymaking process. Mm -hmm. And three, it has sent this wrong signal to the rest of the world about our ability to manage our situation. So I worry, Joe, that growth, which is the answer to many of our problems, is being un un undermined by this whole process. But I'm really glad that I got to some agreement. It, it is scary. I mean, if rates <clears throat> keep going up, they've calculated what our debt service on the 32 trillion is going to be. And it's impossible to grow when everything that, that you could be spending, you know, there are things we'd like to do, education and everything else. And if you got nothing left over after paying debt service, you're, you're not going to have growth, which is what you just, you know, we all agree that, that that's what gets us where we want to be.
I totally agree, especially if, if we tend to cut long-term investments um, in response. Look, yeah. you and I have been on the right side, which is that period of artificially low interest rates and massive injection of liquidity got people to do the wrong thing. And now we're going back to a more normal interest rate environment. And unfortunately, we have the legacy of all these unfortunate behaviors when interest rates were artificially low and liquidity was sloshing around. So we need, we need to get through this. And again, we only get through it one way in an orderly fashion, and that is economic growth. Yeah. So there should be a much bigger focus on growth than there is right now. So you, you definitely are urging both sides to, to pass this as it is. And the president's OK with it, so he's got to get his members in line. Speaker's OK with it. He's got to get his caucus in line. Because I don't see anything else that yeah. would avoid the fault. Now, if you come up with something better, Joe, then that's great. I cannot come yeah. up with anything better. So I would, in my, my humble opinion, we are all better off with some agreement than no agreement. It may not I mean, be the perfect agreement. I, I agree with him completely. This idea that, oh, we should default is just political pandering. Sorry, Trump and DeSantis. Mohammed, thank you. Great to see you. Thanks for having all right. me. So now I want to touch on something else. The one bear piece that there could be. Because people ask me, like, Kevin, there's got to be at least one thing the bears have. And there is. It's actually a strong thing. So let's touch on that. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's do that. The one thing I'll give the bears. One thing. Call it the one thing. We'll keep it short because there's not much. So the one thing the bears have over the market, and it's almost the only thing other than potentially sticky inflation or maybe this reanimation of inflation or war with China and Taiwan. Like somebody just donated $5 to say, how would you navigate the market? If you knew with certainty, hypothetically, of course, that we were going to have a conflict between China and Taiwan. It's like... There's no way you could position for something that far out and that uncertain, right? But it's very common for the bear thesis to look for bearish reasons and reasons to sell and reasons to short, reasons to get out and reasons to not believe in America. There's one that stands above all. And it is right here. This is the inverted yield curve. This is the difference between the two-year and the 10-year treasury. And what you'll find is it's actually slipping more into inversion as of late, which is remarkable. And it, part of that is because the two-year treasury, just so you can visualize how this works, because I know sometimes when we hear inverted yield curve, it's a little confusing uh, and, and maybe a little bit overwhelming. So what I like to do is I like to try to simplify things. I, I do the same things uh, to, to get you from basically zero understanding to a lot of understanding in the programs on Building Your Wealth link down below. Remember, next price increase is June 1st at 11.59 p.m. So the simple way to look about this is like this. Let's say the two-year treasury is at 4.5%, which is approximately where it is now. The 10-year treasury sitting at about 3.75%. Now, Ordinarily, when you lock up money for a longer period of time, 
you would expect that you would have to demand a higher interest rate. But that's the opposite of what's happening now. If you lock up your money for more time, you are actually earning a lower yield than if you lock up your money for less time. The reason for that is because we do still have lingering inflation. And that is creating this inverted yield curve. Generally, the stock market suffers during what's known as the re-steepening of the yield curve. Right now, the yield curve has actually been falling, which it, it, that is further inverting, which potentially somewhat reiterates why the stock market is actually doing well, because it's the steepening, the going up of this line. See over here how it shows negative 0.79? That's just the difference of these two numbers here. Now, I rounded, so my difference is about negative 0.75. The actual number is about negative 0.799. Whatever. The point is, it's usually the re-steepening that hurts the market. And a lot of folks believe that when we go back to zero and an actual normal yield curve is when we will be in a technical recession. Now, remember, we looked at the DAX, which was the German... Uh, basically Dow, it's the top 40 companies, uh, top 40 blue chip companies in Germany. And they're technically in a recession right now. And their stock market is actually outperforming. You're at one year highs in their stock market, despite the fact that Germany just technically entered into a recession. Now, what you could do is you could look at, okay, well, when did we have some of this steepening of the yield curve? And what did the stock market do around that time? Well, the last time we had a steepening of the yield curve was actually during the banking crisis, which is interesting because some people actually call it a faux steepening. They say it wasn't actually a steepening yet. In fact, we're just going to go right back to trend. So look right here, for example, let's draw a line. Let's grab a tool here, grab the line tool. And what some folks are saying is that we're probably just returning to the trend. If this right here was the banking crisis, then none of this hump should really exist if the banking crisis is gone. And we're actually probably still somewhere around these levels in where the inverted yield curve should be. And that when the real re-steepening comes, that's when we're really going to see a world of hurt. Because frankly, if you look at what the stock market did here, which this steepening was around... March 10th to March 14th, the stock market laughed it off. Absolutely laughed it off. Go to the S&P 500. Zoom in on March 10th. Where we got it? March 10th. So over here, you had a what? A 1.8% day to the downside. 1% day to the downside. And then you kind of continued. If you zoom out, and you look at just the year here, I'll set the, the scope to just this year, which this year began right about, where are we, where are we, right about here. So let's set it to right there. This is really what the market's done this year. And you can see it's been slow and steady march right up on the S&P 500. The NASDAQ, it's even more extreme than this. And the banking crisis was right here, this little bump right here. Also your steepening of the yield curve. So there's this idea that, yeah, even though we laughed that off looking back as the banking crisis sort of faded away, you did have a temporary kind of little bit of a few days there where you had some red as the yield curve was re-steepening. So maybe if we get the real re-steepening uh, towards Q3, Q4 and some form of recession, 
then maybe that's where you have some real pains in the stock market. And to some extent, there might be some reasonableness in this idea, given that what's propping up like the S&P 500 right now isn't much. In fact, this is crazy. Out of the S&P 500, the average return of the bottom 495 stocks is zero. The average return of the S&P 500 is zero if you take out the top five stocks. I will show that to you visually right here. Isn't that crazy? The top five stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, and Google, have driven the S&P 500. The bottom 495 stocks have an average return of zero. So this reiterates the sort of bearish thesis that, well, wait a minute, wait a second. If we haven't gone through the real re-steepening of the yield curve, of course we haven't seen any kind of real pain in the stock market yet. And consumer confidence is still extremely low, which you can see depicted in this picture here. The blue line shows you a uh, leading indicator of consumer uh, confidence. And the white line is your S&P 500 year-over-year -year return. Generally, they roughly trend in the same direction, but now we're diverging. The S&P 500 is skyrocketing as confidence is so low. And that's because it's being driven by those five stocks. So you have this, this narrative that bears can form right now, which says, just wait. The real pain is still coming. Confidence is too low. Revenues are going to fall. We're going to go in an earnings recession. And when we get the re-steepening of the yield curve, that's when we're going to get the real pain in the stock market. And just wait. Because that's coming in Q3, Q4. Now, here's the problem with this. The problem with this bear narrative is we don't know how high the stock market is going to go between now and then. Let's look at the NASDAQ for a moment. So we look at the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ's trading for 348. Uh, let's zoom out to the week chart so we can make this a little easier. We can see our Nike swoosh recovery over here. So... We know that in 2020, the stock market was extremely volatile, right? We got all this crazy up and down mess of 2020, and we had this massive downtrend down. But think about that for a moment. As we had the downtrend down in 2022, what you didn't want, if I said 2020, I meant 2022, uh, what you didn't want was to be in the stock market. Basically, the best move during 2022 was don't be in the stock market because it didn't matter. When you had downs, it just ended up going down more. The opposite seems to be true now in 2023, where it doesn't matter if we have downs, we just get another leg up. And so this is leading the bulls to counter the bears and say, look, yeah, maybe when the yield curve steep, uh, you know, steepens again, we're going to have a 10% decline in the NASDAQ. But what if... That means we end up going all the way up to 404, and then we ring the bell, ding, and then we drop 10%, and we're at 393, then guess what? We're still up about 10% from where we are now. And that's, the probably, that's probably the most frustrating thing to say to a bear is, yeah, maybe the market will go down, but how much is it going to go up first? And so obviously nobody knows. 
obviously the charts right now in the week look relatively extended over here. Obviously, we know that this whole like AI revolution that everybody's talking about and and if you're not studying AI, you're getting left behind. But don't worry, if you want to get caught up on AI, you could join the How to Make More Money and Get SH19 Done Faster, where I'm going to teach you everything. Uh, we've been studying about AI to get you caught up as either an entrepreneur or a business owner or or really uh, even an employee uh, who's trying to make more money or provide more value for a business. Check that out. You're going to love it. Price goes up June 1st, 11.59 p.m. So with that said, though, look, the, the bears have a point. Yes, usually when you enter a recession, the stock market falls. And it's only as you come out of a recession that the stock market actually starts rising again. And usually when the yield curve re-steepens, the stock market falls. But the question is, how high do we go before that? That's the big question. And again, I would, I would really encourage you pay attention to Germany. Pay attention to Germany, which just entered into a uh, technical recession. And what I want you to do is I want you to search Google for DAX stock market and zoom out to the max. Zoom out to the maximum zoom out for the DAX. This is the furthest you could look out. And what do you have? You are nearly, wait, I'm sorry. Oh, you are. You are at, uh, you are 30 points away from all-time highs. All-time highs, November 5, 2021, 16,054. We are at 16,024. So you're 30 points on 16,000. That's less than 1%. That's like a third of 1%. Less probably. The third quarter, whatever a fraction of a percent away from all-time highs, and Germany's in a recession. I don't know. It's, it's, whatever's going on, it's weird. It, it just does seem to be very difficult, though, these days to be bearish uh, because we don't seem to have the catalysts that uh, corroborate why uh, we need to continue to be bearish. bearish. And I, I think that's why you see uh, so much talk like this. You know, anytime you turn the news on, it's debt ceiling, debt ceiling, debt ceiling, debt ceiling. And a lot of it is, oh, is it actually still going to go through? Is it, is it actually still going to, uh, you know, happen? It's just exhausting. It's just, that's, that's all I can say. It's exhausting. Uh, and, and there's nothing new about it. I'm tired of it. Anyway, that's your bear thesis. All right. What else we got? Bear thesis over. So what are, what are we on right now? Let's see here. How about I don't know? Let's let's see what they have to say. Understands how <coughs> Washington DC works. Oh, they're going to go to commercial. Okay, oh, fantastic. I know that music from a mile away. Okay, fine. Uh, we'll jump on over to the Doomberg. Let's see what Doomberg has. Uh, ha ha ha! Oh, Morning Joe on commercial. <laughs> you think that'd be like Joe Biden? <laughs> All right, let's pick a different station. How about we pick? Bloomberg. U.S. Trade and Technology Council in Sweden that begins today. The newest version obtained by Bloomberg also softens earlier language on approaches for screening outbound investments. NVIDIA is set to become the first chip maker to achieve a $1 trillion market capitalization. The company's blowout revenue forecasts underline the enormous growth potential from artificial intelligence. NVIDIA is poised to be one of the five U.S. companies with such a capitalization, joining Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft. Only nine companies globally have ever achieved this level. And Canary Wharf has become the latest symbol of the global real estate downturn. 
Moody's has downgraded the debt of the landlord and predicted a challenging funding environment for at least the next year. Now, the East London Financial District, home to the skyscrapers of HSBC and Barclays, says it may need to rely on asset sales to repay borrowing or inject fresh capital into the business. Canary Wharf has more than $1.7 billion of debt coming due in 2024 and 2025. Global News, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Lisa Mateo, and this is Bloomberg. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's take a check of how things are moving into L markets. But uh, I will say, um, you say uh, it should be a very interesting day uh, to see how things play out, just because there's so much... Uh, anticipation and excitement over how the market's going to move. Uh, remember, we've got two days before the price increase on those programs on Building Your Wealth link down below, whether it's real estate, stocks, or how to make more money, especially with the AI courses, uh, AI lectures in that course dropping soon and free for existing course members. So uh, looking at uh, at how L uh, Watchlist is moving over here, uh, let's, uh, let's look at the pre-market. So uh, pre-market, you've got C3 AI skyrocketing another 13%. You've got ChargePoint coming up 8%. Look at that, almost back to SPAC level at 10 bucks. Uh, SoFi, wow, 7% on SoFi right now. Palantir, hey, I saw their company in Palo Alto. They've got a, an office in Palo Alto uh, just this weekend. I was there, 7.4%. UiPath, 7.1%. Uh, there, there is what usually also happens in these times when, when the market does well is you get you get risk assets turning on the, the bull narrative. Uh, now you are seeing, let's see, what do you got to the downside? You got X-Bang, Caterpillar, uh, Moderna, looks like some healthcare's and staples moving to the downside, but otherwise this market seems to be broadly green. Now the one risk asset that seems to be slowing down or at least not keeping up, should I say, the one risk asset that's not holding up is crypto. Now this is actually somewhat surprising because you would think that BTC would move in coordination with some of the risk on rally that we're seeing from uh, artificial intelligence uh, and, and just overall optimism about inflation fading away. But you're actually not seeing uh, that much of a move in Bitcoin. If anything, you're starting to see stablecoin values actually or stablecoin stable volumes and crypto trading volumes decline. Now, this is really fascinating. Let's look for a moment at uh, BTC and let's just zoom out. Uh, it's sort of the, the one year to date here on BTC. So we're going to jump into coin market cap here. What do we got? BTC at 27.8. And if you look over the last year, uh, you can see a year ago, roughly, we were sitting around that 31 level here. Obviously, BTC's come off of its lows. But if you look at the volumes, you're actually at lower volumes now than where you were at the beginning of last year, which which was quite remarkable. And I'm talking substantially less volumes. Okay, so, so look over here on the left. You've got 33 billion of, value, of volume. You've got a low of about 16 billion of volume. Well, you've got volume here of anywhere from 20 to $50 billion. A lot of 30s, 20 to 30 billion in volume for BTC, going back to about 30s, 40s, over 100 billion volume right there. Go to the volume right now. The volume's bouncing between 10 and 20 consistently the occasional 30 sneaking in there but you're probably your average volumes about 15 coming into the last few weeks you actually had a seven billion eight billion dollar day here your volumes nothing 
This is a big, big, big red flag, by the way, to a company like Coinbase or any company that's that's making money off of volumes. But cryptocurrency volumes are absolutely collapsing. And it's quite interesting that you would see cryptocurrency volumes collapse during a time when you're actually seeing what generally people would call a risk on rally. Now, some people are suggesting that uh, maybe that's an opportunity, an opportunity to buy in. Personally, I think the biggest opportunity has been buying undervalued stocks that, that are really creating value uh, and are likely to create a lot of value over this next decade. But a lot of these undervalued stocks of a few months ago have now all of a sudden become very rich. We started seeing uh, the prices of these stocks move up pretty, pretty remarkably. But I find this very interesting. Stablecoin supply is down 9% year to date, with the exception of Tether. Tether's the only one that's gone up, uh, but the other stablecoins are all down. The average of all other stablecoins down 9% year to date, uh, which is quite remarkable because generally you would see more people in stablecoins uh, so they could transact more crypto. But again, you're not seeing more of that crypto transaction. Uh, in fact, you're seeing less. You're seeing substantially fewer volumes. Part of that could be because people are parking their money in money market funds, they're farming cash yields, or it's just because they're investing in stocks instead of crypto. Right? I, I don't know. But the volumes are plummeting. The total supply of major USD-denominated stablecoins is down from about $157 billion down to $122. This is everything, the total of everything. That's a decline of 23%. A 23, well, it's like 22.3%, but 22.3% decline in total stablecoin uh, uh, table, stable coin value outstanding. Uh, you are at the lowest levels of Bitcoin and Ethereum trading volumes crypto ex uh, exchanges have seen since December of 2022. Bitcoin and Ethereum have obviously, we've seen it here on the charts, been somewhat range bound, uh, which makes you wonder, like, is there maybe a chance that you're getting a consolidation and you'll see a breakout? Maybe. But uh, the, the volatility uh, is is also pretty dang nominal right now in in BTC uh, and uh, in Ethereum. So who knows? Maybe you end up getting a vol spike here. But take a look at if we just do a quick basic technical analysis of BTC, you can see we're basically magnetically attached to the twenty three percent Fibonacci line. Uh, if we and this is on the weak chart, this is the weak chart magnetically attached to the Fib over here. It's incredible. Uh, and, and so maybe this is a consolidation range here and we would expect to see some kind of breakout. In fact, if we go to the day chart, we might see that a little bit more, uh, a little, uh, yeah, yeah. You could see that here, right? Let's, uh, let's see if we're, what kind of convergence we got here. Uh, let's see here. Let's go with, let's draw a little bit of a line here. Oh my gosh. Come on. Weeble, weeble function. Will ya? <laughs> Weeble doesn't want to uh, function today, but that's okay. Sometimes it does that. Uh, there we go. Let's get another trend line over here. Thank you very much. What do we got for? Yeah, it's pretty symmetrical. Like you can't you can't really predict a direction out of this one just by quickly trying to see if we've got any kind of convergence and then a suggestion as to which direction. I, it looks so symmetrical. You could go in either direction here. It would make sense that the next direction would be to 36,000, but boy, volumes have really fallen. Let's look at uh, ETH for a sec. ETH USD, uh, obviously a nice recovery here from the lows. Let's actually fix the FIB here because the FIB on uh, ETH isn't matching the bottom. So we're going to grab, 
let's uh, let's just redraw it here really quick. Let's draw the. Come on, Phoebe. There we go. I'll put it here for a sec so I can quickly adjust. There we go. All right, we're gonna set this at a high of forty-eight seven one thirty, and our low was eight sixty sixteen. Sorry, it's eight eighty sixteen. There we go. Okay, good. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you could see we're we're sitting, uh, you know, on on uh, some of the um, the other trend lines that we've drawn, as well as your sandwich between Fibonacci's, uh, the lower Fibonacci, the twenty three percent Fib, uh, and then your uh, some of the other trend lines that we've drawn here. Uh, same thing, basically, as BTC, uh, and probably too difficult to tell any kind of directionality from uh, from a technical basis. So it's it's fascinating. Uh, that you're seeing this uh, of uh, of the cryptos, so we'll see what happens. But volume's really low, and it seems like uh, a lot of folks moving over to uh, the stock market right now. Maybe that'll come over, but then again, it's it's difficult to put a number on what kind of valuation we would expect uh, for BTC or Ethereum. Another one, a, a story that I found was very interesting is Bloomberg ran this piece. They're talking about the Winklevoss twins of uh, Gemini. And uh, some of the quotes here were very interesting. I'm going to read off some of these here. Since going all in on Bitcoin over a decade ago, the Winklevoss twins have had their uh, share of ups and downs. But these days, issues around the billionaire's Gemini crypto exchange, exchange seem to be piling up. And they kind of just go through, I mean, you would call this a FUD piece, right? About a money being $900 million being locked up in the Earn product, thanks to their partnership with Genesis, uh, the SEC suing them. It's a problem. Uh, the uh, foreign derivatives market being the most profitable for them, but unfortunately that being the foreign and non-regulated version compared to what you've got in the United States. Uh, you've got uh, these these volumes that we just analyzed, which is a complete crap show for any of these exchanges. And so add regulatory exchange problems to this, and, and you've kind of got a not-so-optimistic period of time right now. Uh, you look at uh, Coinbase, you know, they're frustrated. They're like, hey, should we move out of America because regulation is so terrible? Uh, yeah, in other words, it's so challenging to get anything uh, changed or sort of a, any kind of structure set up with the SEC. And part of that, you know, everybody points the finger and is like, oh, well, the SEC should should allow, you know, crypto exchanges to do X, Y, Z. But then it's like, well, you got to convince Congress to authorize the SEC to do that uh, or the Commodity Future Trading, uh, you know, administration or whatever uh, and uh it, it, and congress is sitting on crypto they're not going to do anything for a while so uh big big old bear piece here in bloomberg and you can you continue to go through you know some more arguments about what what the market's doing uh let's see here this year jp morgan chase told gemini to find another bank partner because supporting it will become unprofitable ouch jp morgan cutting them gemini's workforce has shrunk to roughly 500 workers from a peak of about a thousand that's 50 percent layoffs basically uh, half a dozen Gemini executives, including its CEO and the co-heads of its NFT platform, also left the company in the last year. Yikes! Uh, it, it, it it's been a it's been a rough crypto winter here, uh, and that's not to say that you know you have to be 100% bearish on crypto, but part of it's probably because of the yields that you know you don't need stable coins anymore for yield. You could put your money into a money market fund or you know, so, you know SoFi or Robinhood or Wealthfront or whatever, earning over five percent. Uh, or um, or just park your money into stocks, especially the tech trade, which has been doing phenomenally well. We'll see how it does today and how we end up opening uh, after this uh, debt ceiling news. I'm curious to see if institutions are selling this or buying this. So we'll see. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah.
kind of kind of wild. So that gives you just sort of a little bit of an update of crypto. I mean, let's see if there's anything more. I don't think there really is. Uh, let's see here. I think that was mostly what we wanted to cover, but I want to see if there are just some other headlines here that we haven't covered. Uh, Bitcoin headed for first monthly loss in six months. Uh, let's see here, some new tokens, but you know, we know how that is. A lot of this, you get a lot of ruggins, a lot of momentum. It's all marketing, right? The more you can market a token, the, the, the more it runs until the marketing fades and then it crashes. I mean, look at Pepe. Oh, good old Pepe. Pepe, Pepe. Hey, maybe Pepe will come back and it'll go to a, a penny. No, I probably won't. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, there's, there's, there's really nothing else. This is, uh, this is some of the bleed that you've seen on Pepe, uh, right here. Remember as volumes decline, you generally see this, this consolidation, as you can see the volumes at the bottom along with consolidation. What ends up though happening is unless you get a new surge of marketing or volume, you tend to get a, an extended bleed out. Uh, so you do want to be careful of uh, diamond handing something that was driving on uh, momentum. So anyway, let's jump on over and see what CNBC has to say. Begins, there's a lot of positive momentum that ends up being mm. exacerbated along with it. Because, you know, put call ratios and, you know, when things get too bullish or too bearish, you, you want to take the other side. But so we're in the early part of seeing the, the bear sentiment unwind. Yeah, you know, it's, it's been really interesting because I think investors were mapping the debt ceiling essentially to 2011, you know, where you got that VIX that was kind of muddling along like it is now, but then we started to peak around 48.50 in August of 2011. And the problem is we, we didn't really get that, right? We actually had a pretty underpriced right tail, you know, knock on wood, there's a couple of days left, but it seems like we're just going to get a, a deal that's going to go through. And so you're going to have a lot of hedges that went on in VIX calls and S&P puts that probably won't get monetized. They won't get rolled over. They won't get reinitiated. And then those who are still in the market are questioning, do we need to get back on the momentum train? Because the right. breadth of the market is incredibly narrow. And we all know that. What does all this Stop. say to you about uh, not just tech, but about 4205 on the on the S&P? Is it are we at the top of a range or are we at the, the if we get through it, is there more upside? Yeah, you know, that's a big question. And our head of equity strategy actually just raised her price target this morning, which is interesting because you could arguably say that she was among the more, you know, bold up on the street as it was. And I think what's interesting about that is that it was sort of the psychological barrier uh, for investors on our side of the fence to overwrite. So essentially to sell calls on it saying, you know, here's where we see the cap and upside on the market. But if we're starting to see NVIDIA surpassing one trillion market cap, a handful of these names going through what you could argue is more of a secular story than one that's sensitivity to long duration and rates, then I do think there's under allocated investors who really have to decide, you know, if they're going to plow in as well. So, so real quick, her, her old target was what and her new target is what? Uh, her old target was, I, I you know, I'm going to get it wrong, just 4,200 or something slightly yeah, below yeah. that. Yeah. And it, it just a raise, I think, to 4,250. Oh, okay. Uh, that's a pretty good limit, or a pretty good resolution <laughs> there for, uh, those are pretty exact calls. Amy Will Silverman, always uh, great 
uh, great to have you on. And, get- and, and keep in mind, I'm I'm a, personally a believer that uh, you know you, one of the things we want to be somewhat careful of is is the the staples within the supply. And we talked about that earlier in this, so I don't want to rehash all of that. But uh, uh, you know, I know the NAS uh, the spy is doing really well because of the top five positions. But uh, as we saw, you know, the bottom 495 or contributing zero to the return, whereas the top five are contributing basically all of the return to the S&P 500. Uh, I, I don't know how much longer that can go on. We'll see. Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer, David Faber, Post Hey, hey, it's Jimbo. Back from the long weekend, all eyes now turn to the debt ceiling vote count. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, the vote count. See, this is what I'm saying. All, nonstop. That's all they can talk about is, oh, what's the, what's the next? Debt ceiling drama. Key debt ceiling compromise will face a key vote on Capitol Hill this week. Plus, uh, about to welcome another company to the trillion dollar club, the AI boom fueling NVIDIA's stock surge. It would be the first U.S. chip maker across that enormous market value. And Elon Musk meets with China's foreign minister, yeah. touting further right. Tesla expansion that country let's begin with a new market week following the tentative debt ceiling forged by the president and the speaker over the weekend jim uh your political cynicism just won't go away well i think that they have to have one more bit of drama it's kind of like tarp just be one more uh maybe not more than that because i think that the speaker seems to have some grasp of they they really got along david i have to tell you i think there's a friendship there between really? the speaker and the president. You're, you're going there already. It's but like, it doesn't matter. There's still wings of the party that have like, to vote against the first time. Come on, you know there's more drama coming. Ron, it's what, back to Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill? Is it like... Well, I think that they're not drinking beers, but I do think that they don't hate each other. Good. I mean, I don't want to put a spoiler alert out there, but I think there could be like one more secession kind of thing. You do? Yeah. So one more dip before the fa- well, finale. Is that, do you think that's wrong? Since I we have like... A hundred people in the Congress saying that they, I mean, like the mansion pipeline, how could there be so many people? It's 95% done. Um, you got to explain how you just got to the mansion pipeline. Oh, no, I'm just pipeline. saying that there's something negative for everybody. There's, you know, the Republicans could argue, well, wait a second. There's still too much spending. Right. To get enough cuts, say, and then they, they and the, the Democrats can argue there shouldn't be any work requirements. Right. Or, and the question will be, can you deliver right. enough of the middle ground? Well, don't you think everybody has to have one more vote where they can say, listen, I stood up for you and then cave? Or do you think it's all just like they can talk, I stood up for you and cave? I don't know. Either way, uh, there are still people buying this, you know, this one-month piece of paper. I don't think that they realize that in the meantime, there's this AI move where they could have made more. Uh, look, I just, I just, I am cynical from the point of view that there's enough people who I think really want to show, look, um, I stood up for me, but that it ultimately passes. You think it does pass? Yes, ultimately passes. Uh, and then maybe the Senate, if, even if we have to go into the weekend, we can get this done by Monday? Exactly. Before anybody, any checks have to be paid. You know, David, there's a lot of sense of what, you know, the first one, Social Security, not a, not a piece of... I agree with Kramer. Uh, a, a note. Mm-hmm. So therefore... You know, maybe you can delay it for a day or two mm-hmm. if you have to. Wait, checking. Just looking back at my notes, that's all. About the Treasury General account and where things stood. That was late last week. And what do you think? How much they're going to draw it down. I mean, they got to get it done soon. They I mean, get June it done. 5th is, is thought to be the real date. So. Yeah, I think that's right. Not June 1. We, no, no. We kind of knew it wasn't June 1. But but that's frankly, what they did June 5th is a little closer than many people thought it would be to the 
to what they had given us as a day. The point being, you got to get this vote done in the next right. week or so, right? I have done. to tell you, you're not worried about Social Security. Uh, no, I'm not. All right, this is boring. All right, zoom out of this. So uh, let's let's see what else is going on. Uh, pretty quiet, other than the things that we've already covered, which I think we've covered a lot of good topics. But uh, uh, you know, obviously, a fear about real estate, uh, a lot of fear about that. Uh, nobody really knows how that's going to break out. Uh, I find that very interesting. We, uh, by the way, we just completed our. Uh, uh, I guess we. I don't know. How much people care about now? I guess I could just keep it short. Uh, we just completed our uh, uh, a big uh, like, gosh, that was probably like a nine month, nine months. No, probably more like eight months. Eight months worth of coverage or whatever of uh, a full audit for House Hack, which is great, and uh, that's completely done. And that gets submitted to the SEC within the next uh, probably week here, which is great because that means soon we'll be able to do our Reg A non accredited investor round, where basically anybody could invest in House Hack. Uh, our goal is still to be buying real estate Q3, Q4. Uh, that's the goal. Uh, the beauty about that is we should have a good idea as to what's happening by then with the real estate market because right now everybody's sort of looking like, hmm, prices did go down from May to December, but they started recovering January to May. Is inventory going to rise leading to some kind of crash? Is the commercial real estate market going to lead to some kind of crash? Uh, that seems to be a big concern is refinancing at these high rates. You know, how long can the real estate market hold up at these rates? Uh, or if we adjusted to a sort of a new normal, you know, will, will more inventory come when rates fall? Nobody really knows, but we'll have a better idea. Uh, my guess is towards the second half of the year, uh, for strategy, uh, positioning, which is great. Uh, so we'll, we'll definitely pay attention to everything that's going on. And, uh, and, uh, yeah. So excited to share with where we're going to be buying in Q3, Q4 as well. Eventually, so stay tuned. Uh, otherwise, uh, let's see here. What other news do we have? We have, let's see, uh, Moscow uh, actually getting hit with some drone attacks and then some counterattacks over to Kiev. Uh, following that, you've got, what else here? Uh, <laughs> okay, excitement over AI, chip makers, tech. What we got Jensen talking about a supercomputer product this weekend kind of touched on that and it is true i mean uh, every the big buyers right now of chips are going to be your most profitable companies right it's going to be your your googles your amazons the ones with plenty of money you know buying more chips is like a rounding error for them it's not consumers that you're relying on to feed the ai rally right now it's all the companies that don't want to get left behind which makes for a very interesting time as well uh, Elon Musk being in China is kind of fascinating because uh, one of the things that I think Tesla ought to consider is more gigafactories in China <laughs> because you can build them so quickly compared to, let's say, trying to build in even Texas or uh, certainly California or otherwise. All right, let's listen back in over here. I keep hunting for some things to talk about. Stories. I mean, one thing is certain. You don't want their ba banking system is somewhat shaky. Is it? Well, I mean, like I mean, if there's you always just been an expectation that the government is always there. Right, well, there were the same way in many ways that our government is always here. Screw it. They don't have anything to talk about either. I'm just gonna go get a shot of I mean, uh, uh, of coffee, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. We'll see you in the next week, Kevin. Report. I'm getting a ton of emails, by the way. 
for those of you looking for bundle coupons, I see them here. So just send us an email at staff at meetkevin.com. We'll get you taken care of today if you want to bundle up. Remember, we got courses on real estate investing, everything I know my entire career about real estate investing or being a real estate agent. You want to make a YouTube channel, there's a program for that. Uh, probably by far the most popular is the Stocks and Psychology of Money. Uh, all my insight on that, as well as the fundamental analysis we do every day in the course member lives. Uh, and then, of course, there's the How to Make More Money and Get SH90 Done Faster with the AI courses. Uh, lectures dropping soon. It's a free upgrade for existing members of that course. But that's great if you're wanting to make more money. Uh, that's your income side, right? So more money as an employee or as an entrepreneur or business owner. So, yeah. Otherwise, good luck today. It should be really entertaining. So thanks so much. See you soon. Goodbye.